This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. And yes, by the time you hear this, England might be in a World Cup final. They might not. The women's pod will be out very soon. Listen to that. In the meantime, the VAR big club conspiracy is real. Onana flattens a very large Wolves player, but nobody sees it. Demoted referees, Wolves robbed, people getting the chance again to say, the thing is, the technology is run by human beings. Again, wonderful stuff. And at the end of it all, a scratchy winning start for Manchester United. While we're on United, we'll discuss Mason Greenwood's future and then on to Chelsea. Caicedo arrives, taking Todd Bowley's spending to over £900 million. A great chance for us to discuss amortisation again. If there's one transfer I'd like to hear Philippe discuss, it's Neymar's move from PSG to the Saudi League. And if time, we'll ask you for some likes and positive reviews and give you more vasectomy content. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, bonjour, ça va, Philippe Auclair. Ça va très bien, Max. Good day to you. Good day to you. Will Unwin, hello. Hello, Max. And hello, Barry Glendenning. Bonjour. Uh, let's start at Old Trafford. Uh, Monday Night Football, Manchester uh, uh, United beat Wolves 1-0. Rafa Varane's header uh, with 15 minutes to go. Will, you were there. Did you have a nice time? Yeah, I just want to be open and honest and praise the work of the referee and VAR because... If a penalty was given, my rewrite two minutes to deadline would have been absolutely atrocious. Whereas in the end, my my first uh, runner was just very average. Um, yeah, what a what a funny decision it was for the penalty. Let's be honest. I think the interesting thing about the demotion of the referee and the VAR official is I don't I feel quite sorry for Simon Hooper. It's one of those challenges that in real time it doesn't look too bad. I don't understand why the referee's being criticised. He's got the backup now of the video assistant, and if he and then if he'd been, he wasn't sent to the screen to look at it. It was just a assistant in in his little box watching it at Stockley Park. Said, "No, that's not a penalty." He's the one massively in the wrong. I think there's a problem with refereeing at the moment due to VAR that they're very cautious, and so even if he thought it was a penalty, we just err on the side of caution because it's injury time at Old Trafford. Let's be honest, he doesn't, want, he, he doesn't want to make a headline for himself. So he's like, well, I'm going to put it in the hands of the people that can look at it a few times because to me, it could be either way. But it was definitely a penalty. And it's a shame for Wolves on every level because it's not like it would have been smash and grab. They deserved to win that match. They were you know, the far better team, absolutely running the show. Mateus Cunha looked like a, a new man. And after four days with Gary O'Neill, you know, I think we all need four days of Gary O'Neill to revitalise ourselves. <laughs> they were really good. They played, they had a plan, they had a strategy. They just can't finish, which was the problem 
one of their problems last year, they scored 31 in 38, and you could see why. Whereas Manchester United have got far more problems than Wolves, judging by the opening day, because they they had no midfield. Mason, Mount and Bruno Fernandes next to each other didn't seem to work and they just Wolves just ran through them at, with ease and you know Manchester United should be mildly embarrassed that they won in the end on that penalty Baz I mean I, I know it shouldn't matter but does the fact that Wolves players didn't all surround the referee and I don't want to encourage that but I just feel like they didn't complain enough because I guess you I mean he was just completely flattened <laughs> <laughs> you know, Kaladic, who's a bit, he's a hard man to flatten, I imagine. <laughs> you know, he's quite big, but they, they didn't really. One guy did. One guy, I can't remember who, who wasn't quite in the referee's eye line, was just like, that is obviously a penalty. Well, I, I, I think there must be something in the water in, in officialdom HQ because, I mean, there was a mildly similar thing yesterday where uh, any rugby fans among our listenership will have seen Owen Farrell get sent off against. Uh, was it Wales on on at the weekend for one of his trademark high non-tackle tackles? Uh, he's got a rap sheet the length of his arm. He he, the English RFU employed a a bar, uh, an expensive barrister went to a tribunal or an inquiry of sorts. Not only didn't get him a short ban, but actually got his red card overturned, which was quite simply remarkable. And this this decision was remarkable. I don't want to see players surrounding the referee and appealing either. And in it, where a case is that clear cut, they they shouldn't have to. I mean, it was quite obviously a penalty. And I, I it just beggars belief that whatever about the ref, the the VAR guys didn't award one. Are you sorry? Are you saying Barry? Are you saying Barry? There should there should be barristers in the yes, VAR room maybe. as well when they cut to Stockley Park, someone in a big wig. Well, no, barristers. Well. In this case... <laughs> yeah, barristers, yeah. Exactly. If, if the ref had awarded a penalty, then you know, a team of men with horsehair wigs and with briefcases would have you know marched out onto the pitch and they'd have surrounded <laughs> the referee. It was just a, an astonishing uh, decision. I, the one thing I would take issue with, possibly with what Will said, is isn't the decision ultimately the referees like VAR doesn't make decisions VAR advises so if the ref wants to go and have another look at it he is perfectly entitled to do so but he clearly just chose not to but surely he's advised by the people that can see it so if if if, if he's on the pitch and he's got someone in his ear and they've given him no reason to go see it and that's you know if he's not given it in the first place, he's not really going to overrule the people that have looked at a number of replays. I can't see where the logic with that would be. I don't. Yeah, the referee has the final decision. He's the one with the whistle and points to the spot. But yeah, once he's spoken to Mister Salisbury, you know, you've got to back your man who's 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 got the replays when all he's seen is a split second. Once he's spoken to Kavanagh. Kavanagh QC, who said... Rumpole of the Bailey. <laughs> Rumpole says, it's not a clear and obvious error, Millard. Yes, Billy? Uh, actually, I've, I've got a question because I watched the game in France and on the feed we had, when the incident happened, uh, there were two uh, in-pictures within the picture showing the same, uh, the incident at real speed, slow motion, several times, and, which, and they were basically intimating this is what VAR is looking at the moment, and the commentators and, you know, the analysts was, were saying, well, clearly it's a penalty, so Wolves are going to get a, a chance to, uh, to, draw the, to draw level. And 
nothing happened. And I was wondering, was it the same in England? Did they show the images that were being played in the VAR headquarters? And also, is there any audio recording of the exchange between uh, Salisbury and Hooper? Because that would only be the only reason why I think Hooper should be uh, penalised for that. So there are two questions. Tell me, please. Well, Barry's the only one I presume can answer that because I was in midair with a toddler for 24 hours and Will was at the game. So I don't know, Barry, what the the Monday night football people said. I, I don't remember, to be honest. But didn't Howard Webb, who's, who's sort of the referee boss, didn't he say last season that he was going to start publicising bits of audio to help us plebs, you know, see the process and hear the process and have a better understanding of how it works? This would be a very good time to start. Well, they did do that, didn't they? They, they, he did, and it was quite, it was really revealing, actually. But they chose lots of incidents that they got right, and a couple of difficult ones that they got wrong. So we're yet to, we're yet to hear the audio of like a calamitous error. But look, as Will says, Barry, Wolves was so much better in this game, and, and Matthias Cunha, he was almost like, you know, it was like the bigger boy at school. He was, yeah. just, <laughs> he was just so dominant in this game. Yeah, um, away from the the farcical refereeing decision Wolves I was astonished I, I wasn't sure what to expect for them I thought Bournemouth did well under O'Neill last season but they were quite boring but this was a very swashbuckling front foot performance and Manchester United seemed helpless in the face of just the same attack over and over and over and over again whether it was Matthias Kuhn or Matthias Nunes who were just galloping through the middle of the pitch from one penalty box to the other and then playing the ball out wide to Sarabia or whoever. And then the crosses were coming in. And if if Wolves were better able to finish their chances, they could have won this game by five or six goals. But as Will says, finishing has long been a problem for them and it doesn't look like things are about to improve anytime soon. I mean, it looked like they were just getting barged off the ball a lot. They looked slower and and just didn't look as fit as Wolves United. No, that, that was probably the the most surprising thing, that um, that Wolves would be a, a fitter outfit and perhaps more uh, more direct in the way they challenged the opposition. You, know, you could expect that from a Gary O'Neill side. But I think probably, I mean, Will, you were there, but and you probably felt that even more than we did in front of our screens. But it seems like every single 50-50 or even 40 60 ball was going Wolves' way, that they were sluggish in possession, that when, uh, and be it by the way, the ball on the floor or an aerial duel uh, or actually any any situation in which you had two players or three players vying for the same ball. Similarly, the contrast between the speed of transitions in, the, in that Wolves team when they had the ball, which was actually one reason why perhaps Wolves fans should actually draw a lot of uh, a belief from that. I mean, I thought some of the football they played was absolutely exquisite and incredibly direct. Uh, and it was just um, not not just Nunes and, uh, and Cunha, but also Ait Nuri had a, had a terrific game. And But it, it, the contrast between that directness and sometimes imagination and risk-taking from the Wolves side, which you would never have expected, marked out the sluggishness, the slowness, the lack of imagination the lack of penetration, I mean, it's the lack of, the lack of, the lack of from that Manchester United side. It's absolutely extraordinary, to be honest, obviously, because this is um, uh, this was such a poor performance that obviously we've got to draw the conclusion that Manchester United are not going to win anything this year or in the next 10 years to come. Um, but 
Yeah, I, I think firing Ten Hag, the fact that you, you, you get three points from that and you know it's only going to get better certainly in terms of performance. But it was really, 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 really poor. Um, I mean, I haven't seen much of United in the, uh, the build-up and the friendlies, but was there anything to suggest that they would be so behind schedule, sluggish? Uh, it- One thing Ten Hag said before was this is the fittest the team would be. <laughs> wow. So, which is... An incredible statement. Well, I think in pre-season, Manchester United had two different teams travelling around playing various games, so maybe they should just feel the other one next time <laughs> out. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose we're... What, you're right, we, we draw all our conclusions from one game and therefore Man United are completely screwed, but it, it was sort of... I couldn't work out what the plan was. Or maybe they just thought, it's Wolves, they're having a bad time this will be easy and like even 5% of complacency at this level is actually has a big impact because actually all these footballers are quite good at it. The interesting thing about United, I think Wan-Bissaka was probably the one that came out with a bit of credit. He was the one winning those 50-50 challenges but the makeup of that midfield, I think, has got massive problems. I can't see how they're going to continue with Fernandes and Mount as the two in front of Casemiro. And Obviously, idle speculation, but Casemiro, you know, the other side of 30, had a very good first season, but I suspect the most difficult physically seen for quite a long time. And if he's having to suffer as he did on Monday night, it's going to be an even longer season for him. And they don't have a, an obvious replacement. And so you've got Martinez who had to be taken off at half time because he had an awful time. Anyone in the final third was basically a passenger. So. They're going to have to get bodies in that they're looking at, especially in midfield. I think Amadou and Arna's been linked, um, Amrabat, and they're going to have to change the makeup of that midfield. Otherwise, they're going to, have, you know, they're going to struggle in quite a few games. I like the idea of um, you know them crossing to Jeff Shreves, going around. There was what was that half that half time change there, Jeff? What's happened? And he just goes, yeah. Oh, Lissandro Martinez was just having an awful time, just wasn't enjoying it, so he's decided not to come back on. I don't think it was Jeff Shreves, Max. I think he's left the building. No, no. But, um, no, he has left. Yes, I okay. was just using... I still think Jeff is still the generic yeah, yeah. go-to. Maybe <laughs> Patrick Davison. I, I mean, I'd go with one of those. Maybe Des <laughs> Kelly. You know, I was just... I was using, a, you know, the generic sense. Um, uh, on to a slightly more serious subject. I've read there were protests against Mason Greenwood at Old Trafford, Will, um, about whether he's reintegrated into the squad. I mean, were there or... or and if they were, sort of how... Big were they? There was two protests before the match, which was one was anti Glazer and one was Greenwood uh, regarding Greenwood. And they're in the same place. So judging who was there for what was quite difficult. Um, it wasn't as big as some of the protests I've seen, but very vocal, you know, lots of placards and, and obviously lots of strong feeling, and rightly so. Um, inside the ground, it was more anti Glazer than I saw with Greenwood. Um, and it was obviously there's a sort of very vocal section at United in certain part of the stadium, which is, you know, where where most of the banners are regarding the Glazers and things like that. Um, I didn't personally see a Greenwood banner, not with you know, not without a set of binoculars. Um, but yeah, there were plenty of banners before the match, which uh, made you know, people making their voices heard, and you know, and obviously it was a week where they've delayed the decision again, having United being quite vocal saying that it will be done before the season. Clearly it wasn't, for you know, whatever reason, in the background. So United have you know come out of the week looking quite bad just because they were very bolshy that you know, if this investigation would be done and sorted and the end result would be confirmed. Um, 
but yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting one. Obviously, he ended up with the Wolves fans doing the sort of chants you may expect in these circumstances without me wanting to repeat them. It was an interesting one, um, and I'm sure if the United keep dragging the decision out, there'll be more protests before the next game. Just to remind people, he was arrested in January 2022. In October of that year, was charged with attempted rape, controlling and coercive behaviour and assault occasioning actual bodily harm. Uh, he denied all the charges. They were dropped after key witnesses, quote, withdrew their cooperation from the investigation, according to the CPS. Um, anyone who has followed that story will have seen posts by his girlfriend and perhaps heard the audio that she shared that's alleged to be Mason Greenwood. There were reports, Jamie Jackson had reported that Manchester United delayed announcing their decision because they wanted to consult key stakeholders, which included three of the England women's team who were about to play a World Cup semi-final in an hour's time. The Athletic now reports that United will inform their women's team of the decision and seek feedback, um, but their opinion will not dictate the outcome of the investigation. I mean, it seems to me, Barry, ridiculous that they have not resolved this yet. Um, Yes, it's been a long time and... The longer they drag out the decision, the more it seems to be apparent that they really want to keep Mason Greenwood and reintegrate him into the squad and play him. But they're terrified of any potential reaction from people who don't think he should be reintegrated into the squad. Jonathan Liu wrote a very powerful column about this that's on the website. I think it went up yesterday or the day before. And I was surprised, actually, the the reaction on Twitter was where you have uh, what Johnny described as depraved Mason Greenwood fanboys was largely the reaction seemed to be from people who, who think he shouldn't be reintegrated into the squad and that there shouldn't be a place for him at Manchester United. But as it's ultimately going to be dictated by the bottom line, isn't it? The benefits of keeping... The financial benefits of keeping Greenwood outweigh any negativity that keeping him would generate. Right, I'm just taking my um, hazmat suit and because this is a... Uh, my goodness, how do you talk about this? Um, you, you you start by talking about it by wondering if it is uh, actually the right thing to talk about it. Then there are all the dimensions. I mean, there's the financial dimension, obviously, which is going to play a role in United's decision, but... I don't think such a huge role, despite the fact that his uh, wages, I believe, are around uh, £100,000 a week, which is no small amount of money. But even then, there's a sporting dimension, uh, which is uh, the fact that he was by far the best finisher at the club. But would he ever be able to play again uh, at Old Trafford or in the Premier League? I genuinely don't think so. I think it would be totally impossible for him to do so. There's the ethical minefield. And there's especially, and I think this is how it's going to be resolved one way or another, it's a legal question. It's the letter of the law, I think, which will dictate what they decide to do. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's taking them so bloody long, because you don't want to be in a situation where you have a player um, who is the subject of some of the, you know, most disgraceful allegations that you can, and accusations rather than allegations that you can think of. And who suddenly turns to you and uh, starts suing you for unfair dismissal. If he's not found guilty in a court of law, how can you justify breaking his contract? And I would imagine that they're going round and round. You've got this, all these dimensions are put together and it's, it's an impossible mess 
And I think that which is why I, I, I try usually not to talk too much about it because it's very easy to cast stones at people and to say, well, United should have done this. United should have done that. Yeah, okay, hold on a minute. How can they do it? Can they legally do it? Financially, the financial dimension, we should we all agree, we should forget about that. This is you know, neither here nor there. But legally speaking, um, it's a kind of Gordian knot. And at some point, somebody will have to be Alexander and take a sword and, and cut it. And this is going to be a risky one. And whichever decision is taken, believe me, there will be, um, there will be consequences, pretty bad consequences for, for uh, Manchester United. But do I have to say, again, perhaps we're losing view of the fact that perhaps the person we should have the most um, sympathy for is the person who is not talked about and who was the victim of the alleged attacks. And, uh, and we, we tend to forget about this when we start to talk about the bigger picture. And sometimes the bigger picture is not the most important picture. Mm. Uh, absolutely right. And it's always important when you're listening to these to, to realise that we have to be very careful about what we can and can't say on all these stories and how when you talk about one story, it's what's very difficult. And I wrote a piece about sexual violence and domestic violence and football's attitude to it. And I actually had to write the piece without mentioning any specifics of any case. Otherwise, there was no way that it was going to get published. So that kind of highlights the difficulty of it. And football's, and what it means is we rarely, but we do sometimes, but lots of people don't go anywhere near the discussion of football's relationship with domestic violence and sexual violence. And it is something that needs to be talked about. It's just really, really, really hard to do it. But as Barry said, Johnny Liu wrote a brilliant piece about it and it is really worth going to find that. Um, and uh, that'll do for part one. We'll be back in just a second. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, we're live on tour in November, uh, starting in London at the Troxy on the 13th of November, 14th of November in Bristol, uh, 15th in Manchester, 20th and 21st in Dublin, 22nd in Brighton. Um, uh, Will, you've promised us an anecdote in Manchester. The Will Unwin anecdote on the 15th. This is going to be, we are going to build this up. We're going to put all the production money that we have will go into uh, a huge musical intro to the Will Unwin anecdote. <laughs> Happy to take it nationwide. Great. Oh, well, that's that's a big shout. <laughs> well, why not? Uh, Philippe, you're coming to London? Well, you're staying in London? Uh, yes, I Excellent am. Excellent news. Oh, yes. I'll bring my guitar along as well. We want your guitar and what you really think about FIFA. And uh, we want people to come. Uh, Theguardian.com slash FWTour23. Uh, come along, please. Tickets are selling pleasantly quickly uh so get in because you'd hate to miss out you know a bit like how upset my wife is about not being able to get to see Coldplay on this tour barry um there's no way what? i know i Why know can't you see them i don't know very hard to get a ticket they're all they're you know they only played perth in australia we weren't there we were in europe and then we've got a small child it's quite hard to sort all these things but you've got an old pair of max I don't have an au pair. Martine did two hours a day while I was on my own. L au pair is... So you is weren't on your own. You had well, an au pair. I did 22 <laughs> hours a day, 22-7. And that's enough hours for me to feel like, you know, I did a good job. Anyway, Moses Caicedo has signed for 
Chelsea in a deal potentially worth 115 million from Brighton. Contract running until 2031. As uh, producer Joel writes, Phil, so far in the future, he'd be probably going to training in a flying car, which Marty <laughs> McFly did in 2015 in Back to the Future 2. It was quite a sweet Twitter video of him, you know, with his mum, I presume it's his mum, sitting on the boot of the open boot of the car in a Chelsea shirt when he was young. So perhaps he just, Barry just want, always wanted to go to Chelsea and not Liverpool. Maybe. Um, I'm beginning to wonder if, if Liverpool are perhaps losing their appeal and and my younger players you know we're we're old men it's harsh on will isn't it but i don't know 35 yeah, okay old enough yeah he's an old younger man. than james milner it's fine <laughs> you know if if i'd been a young good young footballer and liverpool wanted me that's probably the only place i'd want to go but maybe they're not as attractive to younger players anymore don't seem to be able to offer the same good terms as chelsea Liverpool really seem to have messed up their transfer policy. Uh, they've had, you know, it's well documented. They've had three different sporting directors in recent times. The current one's only on a short-term deal, so he'll soon have to be replaced. After missing out in Casado, they wanted to go for Romeo Lavia, but he's also going to Chelsea. Does that speak of a dearth of ambition on his part? Whereas, you know, he'd probably be guaranteed more playing time at Liverpool because... It's not like Chelsea are in Europe this season, so they'll be playing fewer matches in Liverpool. There'll be fewer opportunities. Maybe he just backs his backs himself to to be better and to force his way into the Chelsea team. But um, yeah, Moyes Casado is an excellent signing for them, and obviously people are wondering how Chelsea can make all those signings uh, and not fall foul of financial fair play. I I don't. No, if someone wants to explain it, I can try. It's 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 important but boring, as Philippe said before we started recording. Um, so I'll leave it to Philippe to do that. Well, let's go to Philippe. His 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 hand is raised as Charlie says. Given Chelsea seem to have proven that FFP isn't a thing, should Gillingham go in for Mbappe and allow him to live his dream of hearing his name being sung from the rain amend? So it's about amortization, Philippe, isn't it? I think most people. It's a word football fans have now heard and think, I wish I hadn't heard it, but still. Yeah, that, there you go. I mean, first thing is that, I mean, most importantly, Chelsea are not in Europe, so they do not have to abide by the rules of the UEFA financial fair play. That's the first thing. But they do have to abide by the rules of um, the Premier League financial fair play. And the Premier League has not yet followed UEFA's suit in um, deciding that you could not offer a contract over a period of, which were more than five years. So England, you can still do seven, eight, nine years contract if you want to. So this allows you to split the purchase price of a player between the number of seasons, as we all know now, <laughs> uh, that the player will be is supposed to be at the club. So in the case of uh, Moises Caicedo, he might have cost £115 million pounds, uh, you know, in total, but it will only cost Chelsea £14.3 million pounds a year. That's the way you've got to think of it. And the same goes for uh, Mudrik and all these players and Fernandez, all these players, they've signed on these massively long contracts. So when you put all this together, it's not as, as huge a sum as you think, even if in total we're close to £800 million in total over the duration of the contracts. But on the other hand, what happens is that obviously when you sell players, and Chelsea have sold quite a few, uh, especially this summer, you're able to claim... Uh, most, if not all, of the value, because there's also amortization here. So I'll take an, exa- an example. If you sell Mason Mount and Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who are uh, club products, 
basically they cost zero pound, you can offset the whole value of their transfer to Manchester United in this case. And well, I, I forgot to follow up this cheek, but so that's 75 million quid that you can offset. So, you know, you can get a few Caicedos for that. Then you've got the case of somebody like Kai Havertz. Uh, Kai Havertz cost 65, 71 million pounds. He had two years left on his contract. So you do the calculation and you realize that his value on the book was only 28 million pounds. Then you sell him for 61 million pounds to Arsenal. Uh, and then you realize, well, you've made a profit. It will show as a profit of 36.8 million. So because of that, you're able to balance the books. It's, I agree with you. It's bullshit. Is that, is that never ending? Or is, does that not sort of come back, eventually come back and you have a big hole? No, I mean, it's at, at the end of uh, the five-year contract, the player is worth absolutely nothing in the books. Zero. That's the way it works. It is insane. The whole thing is insane. And and Chelsea, Chelsea also they don't have a shirt sponsor yet. They don't have a shirt sleeve sponsor yet. So that's more money that can come in and you know help balance the books. They have an academy which churns out talented players, which they can sell on. You know they don't necessarily ever have to have made an appearance for the club, but other clubs will want to buy them, and that further boosts profit. But I'm wondering, Philippe, what happened to say? If you buy someone like Moise Casado, give him an eight-year contract and he just stinks the place out and is useless, you know, just doesn't perform. And we've seen that happen with various normally strikers going to Chelsea. You're stuck with him and you're not going to be able to sell him for a profit. You're only going to be able to sell him at a huge, huge loss. And considering how many transfers don't work out, the odds suggest that quite a few of the players they've signed for big money on long contracts will not end up being successes. So, yeah, for example, if uh, if it really was an awful year for Caicedo, which I don't think will be the case, but just for the sake of the argument, uh, and they decided, okay, we're going to sell him, they would have, his value would have been diminished by 14.3 million. So it would only be worth 100 million pounds. So you can imagine, yes, if they sold him for... Uh, 20 million they would have made a loss of 80 million so that's the way that's the way it works i hate to bring this onto the pitch will far be it for us to actually talk about how this might work for chelsea on the pitch but what is it fernandez caicedo and lavia is that a three that's is that what they do i'd be surprised if that's the starting three but you know you can juggle things now you can have they'll probably sign another defensive midfielder before the, the end of the window for 60 million quid they spent over 900 million and they Really, I mean, Jackson did play, I thought, played quite well. But I don't know if he's, you know, is he the only number nine? And Kunku, is he a nine? Like, they still, they don't seem to be like a complete squad, which you'd hope you'd manage to fashion for a billion pounds. Yeah, and Kunku is, is likely to play down the middle, I'd estimate, when he is fit. But he's, he looks like he's going to be out for a while. Probably means, off again, just go buy a new striker somewhere. Lukaku's still knocking about, you know, if they can find, find him. Get him out for a few games, I reckon. I reckon on his uh, his contract, he's going to go for a huge loss now. Well, well, do you have any recollection, actually, Max and Barry as well, of a big club, really big club, European champion just a couple of years ago, who is going to start the season with a, uh, an 11 <laughs> in which there's going to be perhaps one or two players from the previous editions and all the rest are going to be new players. 
I mean, I cannot think of a club where there's been as much turnover. Not even the Chelsea of Abramovich when he started. There was some kind of transition from Ranieri to Mourinho and then second Mourinho season. So even the same thing at Manchester City when uh, they, they were taken on by the Thai guy. Then they moved on to the Emirates. But this is incredible. It's like getting rid of absolutely everything and everybody and starting anew. But I think there's a variety of reasons for this. Obviously, the general feeling that some of it was a bit stale. You've gone through a few managers in a very short period of time. But interestingly, they've hired a lot of new recruitment people. And those recruitment people will have a very stats-based model. And they're they're finding those players that fit into the systems that Pochettino wants to play. To like Checo Silva. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, he's, he's still there with his uh, base contract value of roughly sort of a million pounds, I suspect. But this is it. And the, the, they're going for what Pochettino wants and they'll have their own systems of stats for looking at Pochettino's previous teams of when they were at their best, you know, and performing at their optimum, what they needed style-wise to improve on, say, what they had at PSG, what he had at Spurs, to get the best out of those roles within the team. And to do that, you basically have to sign a completely new squad and hope that as a system it works over the next five years, which is an interesting one in football because it's generally quite a short-term concept. But they know who they want at you know, right-back, central midfield, to fill those roles. And say they wanted Caicedo for £115 million because they know he's the best in that role. And if you want the second person, best person in that role, you go for Romeo Lavia, who's at £60 million. And that's it. They're signing a new squad to fit everything within Pochettino's tactics and statistically... You know who's doing those roles the best, and this is what a, a massive recruitment team does. And if they've got, the, if they've in theory got the money to do it, then they're going to go out and do it, and they're going to say that Mason Mount doesn't fit into what Pochettino does, so he can go, Loftus Cheek can go, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that Lukaku can, you know, sit around the training ground until we find a bid because he's not going to fit in regardless. So we sign two new strikers to play that role, and yeah, it's a. Uh, it's God, capitalism's fun. It's also a very young squad, isn't it? And I think, if I remember correctly, and one of you might pull me up and say that Southampton under Pochettino, which is sort of when he first came to our attention, uh, had Franny Benali, Jason Dodd and Matt Letizia in the side. But I think that was also a very young team, wasn't it? And uh, he did well with them. I'm terrified now I've got this completely wrong. So. Pochettino at Southampton. I mean, I couldn't tell you. I, absolutely, <laughs> I couldn't. I'm guessing James Ward-Prowse was there, but he might not have been. I can't remember. It was so... No, he probably wasn't, was he? Ricky Lambert. Was Ricky Lambert there? That's perhaps where Ricky Lambert learnt his... Graziano Pelle. Graziano Pelle. Yeah, that's good. Um, I don't know, Barry, but bound that if it's wrong, someone will tell us and then we have some content for tomorrow's pod. So that's ideal. Um, Neymar going to Saudi Arabian club Al-Hilal in a move up to, worth up to £86 million. Neymar PSG Saudi Arabia has to be a full house on Philippe O'Claire bingo. Oh my God. Oh Which we God. will play at the live show in London. Give everyone a bingo Thank card. Oh, that's you. fun, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's one of those that you, you really couldn't say, I never saw that coming. I think we all saw that one coming from a long, long way. Even though a, a Qatari club selling uh, one of their biggest players ever, because he was, to a Saudi Arabian club shows that things have changed diplomatically quite a bit over the past few years. They wanted to get rid of him. And um, I have to say that some PSG supporters I've spoken to are, are actually quite sad to see him go, because you, you could get the impression that um, 
uh, all of uh, PSG's problems over the past few seasons have been linked to the fact that Neymar was Neymar. But in fact, the problem was not that Neymar was Neymar. The problem was that Neymar was injured because when he was around, he was actually their best player very often. And very often he was the only player there who was showing actually some commitment to the side when they had become a clown car and everybody was laughing at them. It makes sense sense for them to, to sell him in as much like Chelsea, to make a, a bold uh, comparison. They are planning a kind of reboot uh, of the whole club and the squad and the team and so forth with Luis Enrique and uh, his surplus to requirements. Now, Messi's gone. Neymar, the problem is his fitness. Uh, you know that he's only going to be with you for about half the season. Uh, and then what do you do with him? Um, the idea that he could go back to Barcelona, I think, is not something that could be entertained. And then suddenly there was this opening of selling him for a massive amount of money for a 31-year-old. They, they took it. And that's another superstar going to Saudi Arabia. And um, it's actually only uh, the... Um, these are the headline makers uh, because they carry on. Apparently, Clément Langlais is also joining a, a Saudi Arabian club. So it's now starting to look like what I think I've always believed it would be. It's not a Chinese Super League kind of thing. It's not an NASL uh, kind of thing. It's a big thing which intends to completely shake up the whole world order in terms of football. And I think stands a good chance of doing that in the, in the longer term. Uh, I told producer Joel that just before, I mean, when we were talking uh, about the, this pod, I mentioned the fact that after I watched United Wolves on French television, guess what was the game that was broadcast live on the biggest football channel? It was a game from the Saudi Arabian League. They have just reached a deal for showing um, three games uh, per week, plus highlights for the next two years. At the same time, the Saudi Pro League has also signed uh, a deal with uh, Dazone, or DAZN, depends how you say it, for uh, the UK, uh, Austria, and Germany. So you're going to see Saudi Arabian football regularly on, on Dazone in, um, in the UK. And this is not something that the Chinese Super League did. Um, they, they are putting in place not just uh, the teams, they've bought the clubs, as we know now, the four clubs which have been nationalized, bringing the players in with the kind of arguments that nobody can... Uh, uh, can possibly better in terms of financial terms. What they're doing as well is that they're getting into the media rights circus. They're purchasing companies, creating companies, which are all subservient to uh, PIF, by the way. Anybody who still thinks that Neymar going to Saudi Arabia is just a sign that he's a washed-out player who is joining a competition, which is a kind of a vanity project of Mohammed bin Salman, is totally deluded. It's yet another another cog in the wheel. It's yet uh, another wave on, on this in the surf, non-stop crashing on the European beaches, and which will um, become a very, very big actor indeed uh, within just two, three years, I believe, and which will has in, in view the idea of an expanded World Cup, which we, uh, Club, World, Club World Cup, which we will have from 2024 onwards, in which Saudi clubs, which no doubt will wipe the slate clean, you know, and wipe all the opposition uh, in the Asian competitions. They will be taking part in that and will start beating big European sides. As, as the podcast uh, Moral Compass, can I ask, is it all right for me to be extremely uncomfortable with, say, the Saudis taking over Newcastle 
but to think it's fine for them to develop their own league however they see fit. I think you have a very strong point here, a very valid point in some ways, because first of all, it's not as if the um, the current regime is uh, the initiator of the current Saudi league. It's been in place for a long time. It's actually been a very competitive league for a very long time. It's one of the best leagues in, in the Asian Confederation. It has been for a very long time as well. What is happening is that it's changing its nature, and this is where we can have problems, because it is now being weaponized. And I think you can, there is on one hand the problem with, well, they're actually promoting the regime in, the, in England, and, and they're also using England and English football to varnish their image and, and to present uh, a, a face of Saudi Arabia, which is simply not true. It's, pure, it's a propaganda tool. You can think about that. But on the other hand, if they do it at home, it's their absolute right to do so, you know. It's their right to do so. But the problem is that they're weaponizing that. It's not as if suddenly there was this great, I was going to use the word crusade, as if this was this intent to uh, uh, make the Saudi Football League become even better, an, an enlightened project. That's not that. It's actually completely cynical manipulation, completely cynical weaponization by a sovereign state, by an autocracy, an autocracy to use football to further its its aims, uh, be it be they diplomatic or in terms of propaganda, image, whatever. So yes, you should feel also very uneasy about that, but perhaps not quite to the extent uh, that we feel uneasy about what's happening in Newcastle. It's it's never black or white here. It's different shades of grey, and I think that grey is very very dark in Newcastle, and it's still dark in Saudi Arabia, but not quite perhaps as close to black. As um, as as uh, the other, we we are very quick to to criticise Newcastle. Should we criticise, say, Liverpool because they sold Jordan Henderson to a Saudi club? Is you know, do they get a free pass? Yeah, they do. Um, they do. Uh, Chelsea um, have come across some criticism uh, when they sold quite a few players to Saudi clubs. Well, Fabinho is another one, by the way. But you, you could say that, you know, all they could do is that they received an offer. Um, were they going to make a, a grandstand, you know, uh, and say, uh, no, we're not, never going to deal with these people. This is not going to happen. And the player wanted to go, quite obviously. What about um, <laughs> Tottenham agreed a fee, I think, with Spartak Moscow. Is it Spartak Moscow for Davidson Sanchez? I think he's gone. You know, the same weekend that they were doing a game for Ukraine or a game against Shakhtar Donetsk where Shakhtar was getting the money. Do you judge, do we judge Tottenham for selling to Russia? I think that actually I should look into that because I, I think there's a problem with uh, with the sanctions there. He didn't want to go, but I just the principle of it. I also, this is a, I, I love it. I just do a pod where we just ask, you know, Philippe questions about yeah, our yeah. lives. And it's really like, because I, I, I don't like decisions. I like being told how to feel. It's a, just a nice, uh, you know, <laughs> me and Barry finding out what we should feel about everything from Philippe. Um, and, uh, fascinating stuff. Anyway, that'll be for part two. Uh, part three, we'll do any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Yeah, so by the time you've heard this, uh, uh, England uh, will or won't be in the World Cup final as will the Matildas uh, to our Australian listeners of which I know there are many uh, playing Spain Susie Rack's going to join us on tomorrow's pod to talk about that uh, the Daily Telegraph newspaper in Sydney 
sent up an aeroplane to capture images from the lionesses behind closed doors session at their training base published under the headline 11 poms against a nation welcome to the jungle lionesses as i said we'll have susie on tomorrow to talk about it um on the subject of the women's world cup our friend samindra kunti joined us for that pele pod that we did after he passed away tweeted that new zealand refused gianni infantino a police escort during the tournament and uh, said the fifa president threw a tantrum i know you've done a lot of talking philippe but i can only come to you for this news oh, I, w- I couldn't possibly say how delighted i am by this oh Lord. yeah sorry i don't know where the evidence of the tantrum is we saw you know the 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 you know the quote saying New Zealand police received the request. Sam Sam is a very fine journalist. Yeah. I'm sure he will have at least three independent sources right. with who all witnessed the tantrum of Jenny Infantino. Well, I wish we were there. I would see. love to have yeah to see that mm. a, a, an Infantino tantrum. Barry, do you know where Alex Oxlade Chamberlain is? Besiktas. Uh, Correct. Well done. We really thought that was the most did you know who X is playing for now, Barry, uh, transfer of the window. No, I knew it was Turkey. I just wasn't sure which club. Jeff says, Evening Max, Cambridge fan on 606 was demanding greater coverage of the U's. See, it happens to every club. Why not? Why, you know, you never talk about us. Uh, will you be top of the league by the time the pod goes out? If so, what chance of a quick we are top of the league? I said we are top of the league. Well, no, because we lost at home to Stevenage and our season is suddenly over. Um, that's how we, we had a good ride uh, while it lasted as soon as you leave the country they lose exactly Max, so yeah. maybe you need to come back ah, well I will one day and you know we, uh, the glory days can return and he says dear Max Barry and company my son and I have been loyal listeners of Football Weekly since the AC Jimbo era whatever that is. Uh, In fact, being from the US, this podcast is responsible for almost everything I know about English football, which probably explains why I'm so bad at Fantasy Premier League. This Saturday, August the 19th, my son Ryan is getting married to a wonderful woman named Samantha, and I'm over the moon for both of them. I was hoping that Barry would be able to provide his usual brand of wedding best wishes, though perhaps with less emphasis on the disastrous outcomes of the majority of matrimonial unions that he usually provides. I know this would mean a lot to Ryan. I would greatly appreciate it as well. Thank you for all you do. Cheers to all of you. That's Andy. So that's Ryan and Samantha. Uh, do your best, Baz. Well, I'd like to wish Ryan and Samantha every every happiness, and I'll leave it up to Andy when he's do do fathers of the groom give a speech or is it just the bride? I think sometimes fathers of the groom do, but yeah, I, I can leave it up to him to give the prognosis at the reception. I suppose uh, I've never been to an American wedding, so I don't know if they're any good or not. I've only sort of seen them on rom coms, and they tend to work out well. But I mean, if it is a rom com, there'll be some jeopardy, won't there? It can't all just be good, and then yeah. So you know, but normally that sort of it culminates in the wedding. Hopefully, the celebrant will be <laughs> Ted Danson, and dressed, you know, wearing yeah. prosthetics and a hundred-year-old mad vicar. Uh, what was that? Three men and a, a yes. baby. Friend of the pod, Chris O'Dowd, will be there somewhere, presumably. Oh yes, yeah. Maybe, maybe Barry could run in and stop the wedding. Maybe is there is, any reason? This is the and Barry says, "Yeah, that's a good idea." Do you have feelings for Samantha Barry or not? I'm sure Samantha is a lovely woman, but <laughs> um, okay. I'll be honest. Uh, if if Samantha was even remotely interested, I don't know if she's a fan of the podcast, <laughs> but if she is even remotely interested, I'm, I am available. <laughs> so, you know, you know, that could, it would make the next email we get from the family interesting, wouldn't it? That's what we'll say. Um, but on the off chance, yes, on the off chance that Samantha stays with Ryan 
Uh, we wish you all the very best. It doesn't run off with Baz. We wish you the very best. Uh, Simon says, not a question, just a comment. Some really poor advertising placement for a children's storytelling box on a podcast mainly listened to by men who've had vasectomies. It's a good <laughs> point. I mean, it does mean they've also have children. Um, a different Andy saying after hearing last pod about uh, the vasectomy distractor and Barry asking if it was a thing I can confirm having had said procedure there is someone else there who only seems to start up conversation whenever the surgeon is about to do something in my case it was a woman in her early 20s who was telling me about her upcoming holiday Uh, you may not be aware but during the procedure they numb one side and work on that ball then numb the other side to work on the other ball someone told me the reason I don't remember why I presume you don't get them numbed at the same time actually I'm not not a doctor our our friend of the pod Barca Jim a few years ago he he gave up his his daily grind job to become a funeral celebrant and a stand-up comedian and I believe he is thriving in both uh, pursuits and I think vasectomy distractor sort of is right in the middle ground he'd, <laughs> he'd have the necessary gravitas for the solemnity of the occasion and the procedure while having enough you know jolly gags in his his quiver to to lighten the mood <laughs> so maybe he he could t- take that on as a third job <laughs> i think i'd like you know you know you're right you, you don't need to be a, it's not the it's not the person doing the vasectomy i'd like that to be a specialist job not somebody who like just it's like a handyman like that's that's really pure focus this is yeah. the only thing i do yellow wire or the red wire <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm doing some doing, i put up some shelves you know what you don't get it on air tasker it says i can do any job i can pick up your cardboard and I can do this. Anyway, Andy continues. As she was telling me about her holiday, the doctor drifted to the non-numb side. Now, I didn't want to scream or swear in this woman's face, so I decided to contain the noise. This meant she told me she was going away with a few of her girlfriends, and I responded with a low guttural growl, which made me look like a pervert with my... (laughs) My balls literally hanging out. More of the story is just scream or swear. Keep up the good work. Go football. Uh, Thank you very much, Andy. And I've been asked by producer Joel to to ask people to leave reviews for the podcast. I mean, it sounds so desperate, Barry, that I I'm reluctant to ask people to review it. Uh, but apparently, it's an important. It's we, we need to do it. So so I'm presuming if you listen uh, regularly, leave reviews where Max, like on uh, pub toilet walls, or <laughs> yeah, I think I think on the podcast podcast we probably haven't had a review since like 2016. So it could sort of update them a bit, like my pick on the Guardian website needs updating. But yes, if you could go and I'm not going to say give us five stars and say you love it. Be really honest. Apart from that person you said the other day, I said this podcast needs to. What is it? What did we need to do? Figure out what we are. Yeah, figure out what we're trying to do. I mean, presumably you get the idea from the conversation that you've just heard over the last hour. So anyway, if you'd like to leave us a review, great. Give us whatever you want. And if you don't, you don't have to. Like, don't feel obliged. Uh, in the meantime, that'll do for today. Thank you, Philippe. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Will. Thank you very much. Uh, the Will Unwin anecdote coming to Manchester in November 2023. Thank you, Barry. Thanks. Uh, uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian. <laughs>